And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Hugh Newman back with us. He was last on the program almost two years ago. He's a world explorer, conference organizer, author, tour host. He is a regular guest on Ancient Aliens, Unexplained, Forbidden History, Ancient Civilizations, and other television shows. He is the author of Gobekli Tepe and Katahan Tepe, the world's first megaliths, Earth Grids, Stone Circles, and co-author with Jim Vieira of Giants on Record and the Giants of Stonehenge in Ancient Britain. He also contributed to Megalith Studies in Stone, Sensing the Earth, and Geomancy. He lives next to Stonehenge in the United Kingdom. You welcome back. How have you been? I'm, I'm very good, George. How are you? Good. Looking forward to this. How did you get interested in these megaliths? That actually came through uh, crop circles, actually, uh, way, way back, you know, 20, 25 years ago because they kept turning up, and um, it kind of drew me into the megalithic landscape in Wiltshire and Cornwall and other places, and, uh, yeah, I became hooked, became a megalithomaniac, and that was that. What did you conclude about crop formations? Those things amaze me. They do, and they keep coming as well. Um, they're still coming. There was plenty this year. There's like 25 or so this year. Um, but, yeah, they're fascinating, and the interesting thing about them is that they're located so close to these stone circles and megaliths and ancient earthworks and long barrows and everything else. And they even encode similar geometries and measurements as you get in the stone circles. So, yeah, they're pretty amazing. Um, uh, but, you know, and they go back as well, just like the megaliths do. There's a prehistory of them. Do you think they're ET created? Could well be. I mean, some of them are, uh, are difficult to explain. There's lots of sightings associated with them. So um, who knows? I used to tell researchers that if you had 100 crop formations and 99 of them were made by man, there's the one you can't explain. That's the story. Yeah, no, no, you're right. Yeah, that's it. I mean, even if a tiny percentage can't be explained, and you still have that today even. It's quite strange. I mean, um, you know, people kind of tend to know who makes certain ones, but actually there's still some of them are still very much unexplained. You wrote uh, a book called Gobekli Tepe and Ketahan Tepe, the world's first megaliths. Let's talk about each site, first of all, where they are and what they are, in your opinion. Go ahead with Gobekli Tepe. Yeah, Gobekli Tepe has become, you know, one of the main sites in Turkey to visit. This dates back to 11,600 years ago. This is the dating they're getting now. And they found a whole bunch of circular, oval, or elliptical-shaped um, sort of like stone circles. But the, the, you know, the, the pillars are beautifully carved T-shaped pillars. Then you have two giant ones in the middle as well. And much of this is like carved out of limestone, beautiful relief carvings on it. And they've excavated about what, 5 to 10% of the site. So they've got about five or six of these so-called stone circles already excavated, but there's up to about 15 more um, that haven't yet been excavated. This is just one site. And what they found there is, is really quite remarkable. There's, there's new discoveries still being made there. And because the site uh, appeared to have been deliberately covered over, hmm. then, um, it's hard to kind of excavate. You've got to remove all this rubble and stone. But there, there's geometries coming out of them. There's specific measurement systems. There's um, remarkable alignments and very abstract artistic design in 3D relief on these stones. Now, 
people weren't supposed to be doing this back then. Crazy. It wasn't supposed right. to be happening until Egypt, like six or seven thousand years later. Um, and so you've got to imagine, you know, we're talking about like 20 stone hinges in one site. Now they think there's at least 12 of these sites in total, possibly even more. Um, and so Gebekli Tepe is really just the tip of the iceberg. Does it look like the stones were moved or carved in place? In at Gebekli Tepe, they've got they found the quarry site nearby, about half a mile away. So they were carving them on the kind of plateau they're on, which is near Shanlurfa, in southeast Turkey, um, the Anti-Taurus Mountains. And so they they know they were relatively local, but they still had to carve them out of solid rock and move them over. Yeah. And move them over. Some of them we're talking like between five and ten tons at least. Um, some of them could be could weigh more. They're, they're now finding bigger and bigger stones, like we're seeing at Karahan Tepe, for instance. And yeah, it does. You know, it just shouldn't have been happening at this time. Even this sophistication isn't really evident in the stone circles of Britain some seven thousand years later. And so, you know, where did that? You know, where did these ideas, this innovation, this style come from? By looking at it, Hugh, what would you say its purpose is? When it comes to Gebekli Tepe, uh, they, I think it's multiple purpose. I think it's, as Klaus Schmidt, who was the original German archaeologist who kind of discovered the site in the mid-90s, he said for a long time these were like temples. And this is now being changed by the new archaeologists that have come in. So unfortunately, Klaus Schmidt died a few years ago. And they're now claiming it's a kind of domestic dwelling uh, where people were starting to live, where hunter-gatherers started to kind of settle and start to grow food and things like this. But to me, when you look at the site, you can see these are highly decorated, ritualistic, almost shamanic sites. They're not just for people to hang out in or live there. This is something else. So definitely a ceremonial aspect to it but also all the symbols seem to point to astronomy and even astrology in some cases so it could have been an observatory it could also have been a place where pilgrims would go it could be a memory space where they're holding all the knowledge of their culture in one place and i think it was an innovation and teaching center almost like a unit the first university so it all, it, all this adds up to something quite remarkable are there doorways, Hugh, where people can go into some place? Well, the strange thing about Gebekli Tepe is, is that there's no clear, apart from a couple of the enclosures, there's no clear entrances. They're kind of almost like being blocked up with walls. Yet some people have suggested they may have had roofs. That's one of the theories. So people would have gone through the roofs, through these hold stones that were part of the hmm. constructed roof. But on in, in enclosure D and enclosure it does appear to be entrances coming in from the south uh, that, that got changed over time as though they're kind of um, kind of entering from the south looking north as they approach the kind of center of these enclosures so that it's, it's, they may have climbed down steps is another option that's why they can't explain why there's no clear doorways at ground level but yeah but certainly there's um, there's different theories about that for sure is the structure hollow or is it solid well, most of the what's been excavated at Gebekli Tepe is, um, is uh, located on the bedrock. So the structures are built upon a layer of bedrock, and then they kind of place the stones, insert them in sockets and things like this. And 
balance them in place somehow. Um, and but some of the structures, the later structures, they actually cover over the earlier enclosures, earlier kind of stone circles, and then build upon that. So they build upon the mound they've covered it up with. And so there's lots of rebuilding, reconstructing, reorienting, I think, as well, when it comes to the astronomy and astrology. And so, yeah, I think there's... Um, quite a lot going on there and these were in use for you know a couple of thousand years before they were kind of covered over and completely forgotten about for about 10,000 years wow that's amazing let's move over to uh tepe where is that caravan tepe is located 23 miles or about 37 kilometers southeast of gebekli tepe it's in the tektek mountains this is limestone mountains but when you drive through there, you really feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. It's like a marsh landscape. And Karahan Tepe, um, uh, that's, that's a modern name given to it in 1997 by Bahatin Selik, a local archaeologist. It used to be called Ketchley Tepe, K-E-C-E-L-I, and Tepe. And this is still the name of a local area. And um, this is, again, this has only recently been excavated since late 2019. I've been visiting the site along with Andrew Collins and J.J. Ainsworth since 2014, before it was excavated. And all you could see there, which is pretty weird, is just the tops of these T-shaped pillars popping out of the ground because it had been covered over, remember, like all these sites have. And so, and we always wondered what was going to be discovered there. But then when they did start excavating and what did come out of the ground when it was eventually announced in uh, 2021 is absolutely mind-blowing. And it really is on par and similar uh, to Gebekli Tepe. And yet here they appear to carve directly out of the bedrock in many cases. We have kind of kind of subterranean chambers with pillars, you know, carved directly out of the bedrock. We have protruding heads coming out of walls. And, um, and even some of the tea pillars and benches on the western edge of the main enclosure anyway at Karahan Tepe, is carved out of bedrock, whereas the rest of the enclosure is freestanding T-pillars. So it's a very sophisticated site, um, and they're realizing now, especially with new discoveries that have come out, that it's much bigger, even bigger than Gebekli Tepe, and this is just one of the other sites. How deep were they uh, covered up? They're covered up. I mean, when you were, we were visiting Karan Tepe, you know, since 2014, before it was excavated, it was covered up to the tops of the T-pillars, basically. It, was, it would have been completely covered over. How many feet might that have been? That's, you're, you're probably talking um, between 7 and 12 feet. Wow. more in some cases, because some of these T-pillars, um, and now we're thinking they could be up to, like, um, at least maybe 15 to... 18 feet tall at Karahan Tepe. Jeez. So it could have been even more. They could have had layers on, but over time, you know, thousands of years, it kind of the tops get, you know, the wind and the weather kind of blows off the top layers, so things start to get exposed. And so, yeah, so Karahan Tepe is really where it's happening now. This is where all the new discoveries are coming out. And, you know, I think one of the most important things there is what's called the Pillar Shrine or Structure AB. And this is it's about six by seven meters um, wide, um, so 20-odd feet. You know, it's the shape of a kind of egg. And 
cut down into the ground, directly into the bedrock, but they've left these kind of phallic-shaped monoliths carved out of bedrock um, coming out of the ground, which is utterly unique in the area, and it kind of blew people away when it was first discovered. And um, since then, more discoveries and the importance of that uh, are now coming to light. Hugh, do you think these structures were buried on purpose, or were they buried by weathering? They were buried on purpose for sure, because you can see, you can see this you know, most of the sites now, that they were uh, repairing the sites, really. They were repairing them because they must have got damaged, and then, then kind of burying them really carefully so all the stones upright in situ. They were placing kind of artifacts, these polished stone plates, for instance, on some of the benches between the T-pillars. Um, so they were definitely covered over. In fact, the archaeologist Neshmi Karal, who's running the excavation at Karahan Tepe, and Gebekli Tepe now, he, he wrote a paper about this, and you can clearly see that in Gebekli Tepe as well. I mean, it's completely, completely covered up. And just that alone, we're talking thousands of tons of earth and debris and stone being moved into place to kind of um, uh, to do that job. You know, so you've got the construction of it, you use it for a couple of thousand years, you repair it, then you bury it. So altogether, the amount of work, there must have been hundreds of people involved in this. Why bury it? Was it were they burying it to hide it or for some other reason? That, that's a good question. That's what people are kind of confused about, to be honest with you, um, because they don't really know. I mean, they, they found that some of the site at Karahan Tepe, for instance, had been deliberately damaged. Uh, kind of smashed up, and then it was buried, you know, and it's like, hang on a mm. sec, so is this a symbol of them kind of wanting to close down the site, like decommission it somehow? Yeah, something might have happened. Yeah, then they move on to maybe other areas, maybe something was happening, and they, they had to feel like they had to move from that area. Um, why that is, we don't know, but we know that, you know, there were incoming, you know, different people coming in from different areas. There could have been trouble in the area. It could have been to do with the climate. It could have been to do with trouble growing food. Cause it's now known that agriculture developed just after the construction of Gebekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe, the whole Neolithic revolution, if you like. Um, and so, yeah, so we have, to, um, we have to consider that as a possibility. Could they have been sacred sites and for some reason they decided to do away with them? Yeah, I mean, it could have been other people coming in and, like, just wanted to destroy them, you know, things like this. But the fact that, you know, I think they were very much sacred sites. I think they were observatories. They were sacred sites. Um, and maybe they just yeah, had used them for what they needed to use them for. And they moved on to other areas and they would build other sites in different places. This could be the case. There's definitely stories of migration and evidence of that now. Um, but the fact that, you know, they were observatories, maybe they, you know, the stars and the planets and the sun and the moon had moved from where they wanted it to be after, the, you know, they, so they, they're done with it and they moved on to somewhere else. So that's uh, one of the ideas. Jeez. Were they buried in sand, Hugh, or just dirt? Well, it's a bit of both. I think they, they used the local materials like rock, rubble, um, different soils. There's even evidence in the pillar shrine where these kind of 11 pillars sticking up out of the ground with the head sticking out of the wall, um, that they kind of layered it really carefully. And then at the very top, they put kind of flagstones, like large flat stones, 
to kind of cover it over to, as like a final layer, if you like, um, and, and kind of preserve what was in there. And they've, they've found possibly stuff, possibly materials from different areas, like people are coming in from different parts of the country even. So, that's, um, so it may have been a very special pilgrimage place when it was in use. In terms of widespreadness, how big would it be if you were looking at it from above? Karantepe stretches at least for a mile, I would say. A couple wow. Of, a couple of kilometers if you stretched it across the landscape because you've got, you got stuff going on on different hills. Like to the north, you've got Ketchley Tepe. You've got, um, uh, you've got sites further afield, like seven kilometers away or five or six miles away, like Habet Zuvan Tepeze. And, yeah, it's, pr- it's pretty big. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's bigger than you think. It's not just one site you could walk about in. I mean, because the largest enclosure at Karahan Tepe is 23 meters or 75 feet. And that's only the main one that's been uncovered. There's a whole bunch of smaller ones in the general area. Um, but it stretches across the entire hill, across the valley, then they're realizing. And, yeah, it's pretty epic. And I think people are going to realize that Gebekli Tepe is bigger than people realize. That is amazing. The other sites are as well. It's, it's pretty amazing. What is the significance, Hugh, of the winter solstice alignment at uh, Ketahan Tepe? Yeah, that's one thing that really stunned myself and J.J. Ainsworth. We um, had a fascination with archaeoastronomy for a long time, and a series of events led us to um, to be there for the winter solstice in 2021, uh, like December the 20th it was at the time. And we discovered this remarkable alignment. So there's a whole stone, which is like almost carved out of the bedrock, between the main enclosure and the pillar shrine, where all these upright pillars are carved with the bedrock, and this head sticking out, which has got serpent scales and open mouth on it, which is three times the size the human head <clears throat> and what they what we found was is that 10 minutes after sunrise the sun would light would beam through the hole and l- illuminate the stone head precisely and it would last and the, the, the kind of as the sun moved across the sky the light would come in at a slightly different angle and illuminate more of the stone head and it would illuminate it for 45 minutes wow that's amazing so clearly this was designed for this purpose, to mark the winter solstice. It doesn't work any other time of year. The light only comes through and hits the head at that time of year, the most extreme uh, southerly point of the sun in the year, you know, going up to Christmas almost. And so that really stunned us. And we did uh, some extra research on that, and myself, JJ, and also with Andrew Collins and um, Rodney Haley helped us. And we realized if you go back to the time of construction, which we're talking, the date of Karahan Tepe goes back to 11,400 years ago, so it's a little bit younger. That's amazing. Hugh, hold on. We're going to hit a break and come back and talk more about the megaliths on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie along with Hugh Newman. Uh, His website is linked up at coasttocoastam.com, by the way. Hugh, in addition to the winter solstice alignment you discovered, you also found some hidden geometry and ancient measurements there. Tell us about that. Yeah, at Gobekli Tepe and and at Karahan Tepe, we have found some very interesting uh, research, actually. Uh, Because I've been studying the stone circles. I've written a book about this, obviously, uh, in Britain. You know, these were, and, and Alexander Tom, who was a Scottish engineer, discovered multiple, up to eight different, very specific geometries in the stone circles here. 
But when I applied that to Gobekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe, we came up with some remarkable, well, coincidences. Um, and we found that each of the so far um, excavated enclosures at Gobekli Tepe, uh, B, C, and D, the three different enclosures, we found the same geometries as we're finding in British Stone Circle. We even found one of the geometries of Enclosure D is the same as Nabta Playa in Egypt, which is a stone circle found in the southern, very southern edge of Egypt towards Sudan. And, um, and this is what's called an egg-shaped circle type 1. It's almost like a kind of odd egg shape, but it's constructed using Pythagorean triangles. We also found in Enclosure C a flattened circle modified type B, and also a possible flattened circle type D for enclosure B. And so it, it gets pretty interesting when you start looking at um, all the different intricacies of these sites. And this kind of information should not have been around at this time. Further research has been done by some uh, Israeli archaeologists, Avi Gopher and Gil Hackley. And they found also, this is published in an academic paper, that the the, the three main enclosures create a perfect equilateral triangle with various geometries and um, associations with it. We even, we even found, when we applied this, my friend Adam Tetlow and I found some remarkable um, numbers coming out as well. We found ancient measurement systems encoded within the site, such as the Sumerian foot, the Persian foot, the Royal Egyptian foot. We've even found the megalithic yard, which is a measurement found in British stone circles, which is 0.83 meters or 2.72 feet. So this all suggests that the origins of this geometry, this ancient metrology, and this orientation was, this was really first done at sites like Gebekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe. Um, and so what does this mean? This means potentially they had an understanding of the size and shape of the Earth. So they may have even been measuring the Earth. And when you start looking at things like um, Enoch's stories in the Book of Enoch, mm -hmm. um, he talks about taking cords and going off to measure and things like this. And so it kind of all starts, you know, you might have this realization that all this information that's encoded within like the pyramids, the stone circles of Britain and other places originated at sites like Gebekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe. So it really is quite astonishing. What fascinates you the most to you about these sites? Well, I think, I think part of what I've just been mentioning is we're finding all these anomalies that shouldn't be there. I mean, one of the other things that also fascinates me, as you know, but I've talked about it before, is earth grids and earth energies and things like this. And they've even found um, inside enclosure D, the main enclosure at Quebecly Tepe, some remarkable uh, acoustics and also uh, a, a magnetic anomaly at the center of enclosure D, like a spiraling magnetic anomaly. And this was actually found when they were studying the acoustics of the sites as well. And, uh, and to find a site this old that's built upon a magnetic anomaly harks back to all the, all the research put forward by John Burke and Kaj Halberg in their book Seed of Knowledge, Stone of Plenty, where they claimed that the placement of seeds at specific spots in ancient sites would charge them up as though the site was designed to be a seed charging station. But then when you plant them, they grow much stronger and quicker. And we must remember that the sites in this part of southeast Turkey, this is where agriculture developed and began after the construction 
of the site not long after. So was there some kind of remarkable innovation that took place here where they were utilizing, even way back then, the magnetism of the earth to charge their seeds and grains and actually develop agriculture? Now, this is quite a, a kind of far-out theory, but this could be the case. Years ago, Hugh, I had heard that Gobekli Tepe might even have been a landing spot for rockets. What do you think of that possibility? You know, been, yeah, there's been a lot of interesting uh, theories put on, put on these sites, that's for sure. Um, now, when you look at the style of these sites, one of the first, a lot of people say this, when they first see it, they can't believe ancient hunter-gatherers could do this, could create this site. The, art, uh, the artistic expression, it's very abstract, it's very bizarre, it looks almost alien. And this is what has is, is really got people kind of um, talking about that as a possibility. I mean, it's been on, we've been on Ancient Aliens talking about this, for instance, trying to get our head around it and trying to understand this. I mean, one of the statues that was discovered some years ago called the Kalisic statue, which was found further north, looks like an alien from the alien film franchise. It actually looks like one. The head kind of goes way back. It's got like a grinning kind of teeth, gnarling teeth on it. And uh, people have compared it to alien. And so I find that, you know, quite intriguing. It is truly remarkable, isn't it? It is. I mean, what is coming out of the ground there just is like an anomaly. Because they were all deliberately covered up, even the civilizations that came through the area, like the Sumerians, the Hittites, the Romans, etc., didn't even know they existed. And so they were almost, you know, only now are we, are we getting this. So there's been, it's almost like a missing segment of history for the last 10,000 years that's been hidden. And so we're just starting to get our head around it now, thanks to all the uh, excavations that are taking place. Truly remarkable. Now, the, the stones that are there, are they cut like perfect, like there's no abrasion? Yes. There's, yeah, the, the stonework is astonishing. Yeah, I mean, when you have a, have a look up close, you can see that they've almost polished. It's almost polished some of it as well. It, it look, it's very strange. I mean, you don't expect that. I mean, they're working with this quite tough limestone. It's quite... Um, high-quality limestone mainly, but there's also basalt they're using on some of the stone plates and some of the artifacts, some different materials. But yeah, I mean, the quality of the stonework, you, you almost can't see the uh, tool marks or anything like that. And the fact that they were kind of creating such precision artwork. And some of the artwork, you know, if you look in the enclosure, see there's a particular kind of creature crawling down looks like it's crawling down the front of this thin T-pillar. It's, it's carved in 3D high relief. And so, who, I mean, where did they develop all this from? I mean, there's not much evidence before that. There's a few little places like Cortic Tepe and Bonchoclutala where they were doing some stonework of a similar style. But this is it's like a high-level, sophisticated culture uh, were creating this from scratch. And you think about... 3D relief carvings. You've got to carve away everything outside it to leave what's there. So just you've got to think kind of in such a um, peripheral way that it's absolutely astonishing all around. Are there any other structures like this in South America or North America? Any similarities? Well, you can compare. Um, you can compare a lot of um, 
what's being found there, especially if you're looking at some of the statues and the T-shaped pillars, because we must remember that T-shaped pillars are like anthropomorphic, so they're kind of partly human. Now, the, the top of the teapot is like an abstract blank head. There's arms coming down the side, there's hands touching the navel, they're wearing these belts like with H's on, and this has been compared to many other cultures, like we find, like we see the hands on the navel in the statues, the Moai statues of Easter Island, for instance. We also find similar things at sites like Tiwanaku and Pumapunku for it as well, similar types of statues. And so, and also, we must remember that um, the name of Gobekli Tepe really means pot belly or navel hill. And Easter Island as well, the tradition there is that that's the navel site, that's the kind of center site. And yet they all, and then they all have hands touching the navel. And so, these similarities are like possibly a massive coincidence because officially Easter Island is a much later culture, but maybe not. Maybe there was a much earlier civilization that many researchers have been putting forward as a theory. And you can look around the world, you start looking at places like Sulawesi in Indonesia, even some of the statues on some of the islands of Japan, um, and later sites in Europe, you find similar ideas kind of being spread. And that now all these sites have been discovered in southeast Turkey. Suddenly it all comes clear where many of these ideas came from. What does your gut tell you, Hugh, in terms of why these things were built? Yeah, I think these were built, partly I think these were built because um, it was like they were wising up. They were kind of being inspired by something going on. And it was, a, it was like a group effort to bring all their knowledge and wisdom and innovation into one place, one area and to then become become like a teaching space for this to then uh, develop. And it became a legacy. And I think they were recording all their knowledge from thousands of years of hunter-gathering, going back to possibly Paleolithic times, and placing it in one spot. And I really believe a lot of their inspiration, um, there's a big question mark over this, but I think a lot of their inspiration may have come from the ingestion of uh, mind-altering substances that they were kind of uh, hmm. experimenting with at the time. This is just one uh, one idea. It's like the kind of Terence McKenna idea. Graham Hancock spoke about this. But when you start looking at the proof that's coming out that they were brewing beer there, the earliest beer, which is interesting in its own right, which is a slightly mind-altering substance, but then they found, they found at other places actually earlier than this that when barley is brewed in a certain way to make beer, ergot can actually be a byproduct of this and this is the substance that is very similar to lsd and this sounds kind of crazy but Weird. this is a genuine thing that's actually being discovered at not agabekli tepe yet but certainly at other sites um in israel that they're even older that they were brewing beer and the byproduct was um something that was uh, rather psychedelic could this have been an entertainment area where perhaps they had it full of tents and things like that uh, on the top of it? Well, yeah, I mean, the, st the structures themselves, the enclosures are quite large, and they're definitely designed for, um, for like, ceremonies, for entertainment, for performance. 
dancing possibly as well. And so I think there's an element of that with these sites. I don't think they're all like kind of uh, morbid ceremonies or rituals. I think it's, it was a kind of innovation center. People were celebrating. They were kind of having fun. You know, they were doing all these things uh, as well as learning and teaching and things like this. And so I think, um, I think there's an element of that. And you can actually see that. I mean, you look at the shape and size of some of these enclosures. They're massive. You give it hundreds of people in them. And, and the evidence now, they've done a lot of research on acoustics. Um, our good friend Andrew Collins has done some research on this because they're very elliptical shaped in, in a general sense. And so this, he did some analysis of the specific um, shapes in relation to acoustics and found that they are very resonant with human the human voice and also with infrasound if they were banging drums and things like this which you can reach altered states with as well and so there's quite a lot of uh, other research that have backed this up um, uh, suggesting that may have been the case so I think there's more to it I think these sites were multi-purpose I think that's the, that's the key thing here do you think it was a super civilization out there certainly do yeah that's, that's one of the terms that I've come I've come to associate with this culture, because if you put it in perspective, this is a huge area. We're talking, you know, Gobekli Tepe and Karantepe are two sites out of 12 which are being investigated now, okay? And, but there's potentially double or triple that amount. And the area stretches for 200 kilometers or about 125 miles wide. And so, if more sites are being discovered and they're, they're realizing that some of the other sites they haven't even started excavating yet could be larger than Gebekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe. And so this, is, so this to me is like the first ever super civilization on the planet. And it's going to rewrite history. In the next few years, it's all going to blow up and, and people are going to go, oh, my God. And all the history books have now got to be rewritten already. And that's before, you know... The rest of the sites are properly uncovered, um, and I think you've got innovate, such innovation there with the astronomy, the things like acoustics, the geometry, the stoneworking techniques, uh, the layout of the sites, the, the kind of geodetic system as well. All the sites are kind of built in relation to each other over great distances. And I think there's something remarkable um, happening there going way back almost 12,000 years. So, yes, I believe this is the world's first super civilization. Does Stonehenge look primitive next to Gobekli Tepe? Stonehenge is, uh, doesn't have the 3D relief carvings we find at Gobekli Tepe. Stonehenge is pretty cool. I mean, it's, um, it's got the stones there. A lot of them are carved and shaped into that kind of um, system that we see there where we have the lintels on top of the uprights and the blue stones have some intricate kind of niches and carvings and, and kind of things like that on them. But when you look at Gobekli Tepe, it's almost like, it, it seems like it was built after Stonehenge because it seems like that's the way the kind of evolution of design went, but it's the other way around. It's almost like the best stuff came first, out of nowhere almost. And so you can compare it to Stonehenge because the size of the enclosures, each one, you know, the larger ones anyway, are close to the size of Stonehenge. And I think there's actually possibly connections. I mean, you start looking at the geometry and the ancient measurement systems of Stonehenge, and we're finding the same 
systems in place at Gobekli Tepe. Hold on, Hugh. We're going to take a break at the top of the hour. We'll come back and talk more, and we'll open up the phone lines and give folks a chance to ask you a question.